Looking, looking, backcourt to Siakam at three, at two. He will spin, rise, fire, and miss! And the Warriors get the W! <laughs> what a game. What a stop from Andrew Wiggins. It's a great contest. Didn't really get much separation. Oh, my goodness. Steph's struggling. The others come up big. And Damian Lee, Mr. Audacity, does it again. Siakam. Covington defends. Dame shows the double. Siakam. Tough jumper. It's off. Siakam trying to get the tip in. And that will do it. The Blazers rise up from the ashes and take. Siakam, the Beyblade spinner, Stanley Johnson at the five, and Block Quebecois, Chris Boucher. Three huge takeaways from a week where the Raptors went two and two and are no longer officially the worst team in the NBA. Varel, I just want to quickly start with you. We're going to get right into these games. Um, we're going to start with the 106-105 loss at Golden State. A very tough team, a team we discussed last time, obviously, uh, that is mm-hmm. not just Curry and a bunch of scrubs, but do have a lot of serviceable role players. I want to go right to the end. I want to go backwards, however. The last play, right. 106-105 down, Pascal Siakam has the ball, and uh, you know he's, he's one-on-one. And as you've heard at the start of the video, start of the podcast, sorry, he decided to spin and carry out a long two, carry out, sorry, two unnecessary spins before firing off a long two that rimmed out. My question to you is, in light of that and the next game against Portland, should Pascal Siakam be the Raptors' closer? Well, you put me in a predicament there. That's a very tough question, Kamal. Um... I think what we from what we've seen from Van Vliet in the past four to five games, I think it's almost it's a requirement that he takes those closing shots. I think he's he's not the type to fold under pressure, to choke when the stakes of the game are at their highest. And so the benefit also of having Van Vliet as the closer as well is that he's less likely to get doubled on the perimeter. And so say if he was able to actually break past his man and get to the basket, he can also pass out to an open shooter as well. So the thing with that Siak and play Kamel is kind of encapsulates the frustrations that we have with him as a player, because there's a narrative that I'm sure you might have heard about uh, Siakam, which is that he only is able to rely on his spin move. And the fact that he does a, a double spin and then has a jumper, which we were critical of him shooting from the outside too much as well earlier on in the season, kind of is, encapsulates everything that we're frustrated with him by. Yeah, I mean, the problem with Van Vliet taking the shot is, and we saw this against the Celtics, uh, in last year's playoffs was that he's just too undersized for the role and if you put a big defender on him whether it could be Wiggins if it's Golden State if it's against the Celtics it was Jason Tatum for example he's not sure. going to be able to get off a shot um, in this game though they were both pretty good I mean Siakam was 9 for 19 from the field uh, scored 25 Van Vliet mm-hmm. also had 21 but he was only 3 from 10 from beyond the arc and that's a habit with him uh, in Saturday's game 
he was five for 15 from three. So he's chucking mm-hmm. up a lot, but not yeah. making them a good clip that he, that he normally does. Um, so that's the problem with Van Vliet being the closer. Um, Nick Nurse in general favours those one-on-one situations later on. And we'll discuss it in, in the Portland situation later on because obviously there's some benefits. You know, you trust Siakam has more talent than the opposition, especially if he scored 20-plus points that game. He's in, mm-hmm. he's in good nick. You obviously, there's least chance of a turnover. I mean, the worst thing is in the last shot of the game is not being able to take a shot at all. You know, you, mm-hmm. at least with one-on-ones, you'll be able to make that. And, and, if, and if you think about it, someone, if you think all the way back to that Kawhi shot against Philly, that was mm-hmm. one of the worst shots I've ever seen, right? In terms of mm-hmm. where he True. took it from. He was turning a corner, right? Closed down by two six, seven-footers. You know, that's not a good shot. And if, yeah, imagine if yeah, Siakam yeah. make that. Yeah. So um, it's, it's a real toughie. I mean, the game itself, moving away from the end the game itself was this just the Warriors being good I mean at this stage they were six and four um the Raptors slipped two and seven after this game uh was this the Warriors strength or was this once again the Raptors who had managed to build up well in fact they built up a sizable lead and fell in the second and third and eventually the fourth quarter was 33-19 to the Raptors was a huge comeback in the fourth but Mm -hmm. just fell short at the very end um who is this loss on? Yeah, I think that's a, that is the main question of this game. Because we look at the Warriors, they shot 28% from three. Curry was one of 10 from three, two of 16 from the floor. How did Golden State pull off a win with Curry having statistics like that? And this is a Curry who's been in tremendous form. So you can look at it one way and say, wow, the fact that they were able to do this to Curry is um, you know, quite a big positive. But I don't particularly think when I was I analyzed the kind of shots Curry was taking, I don't think it was due to a, a tremendous level of defense. With Curry coming back from the injury, he early, especially early in the season, we did see him have games like this as well. So I think one of the uh, worrying signs aside from that is the number of uh, Warriors players that were also in double digits, even Draymond. Donkey Draymond managed to get 10 points in this game. which All the starters plus Pashal and Damian Lee, who sunk the winning yes. throws. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and we can, we can even talk about that foul on Damian Lee. I mean, that was an absurd foul for Larry to commit. I think he's perhaps like going too far with trying to get the small advantage. Perhaps he's just trying to put him off by putting his hand on his elbow just to put him off with a shot. But that is going to be foul uh, called by the referees if it is caught. And it was caught. And... Um, the reason why it was inevitable to be caught was because there was also two players on him. So the referee's eyes are completely locked on on Lee. They know there's two seconds left on the clock. So rather than being, you know, this veteran wideliness is in fact incredibly stupid. It was really frustrating to see that foul be committed. But um, going back to just wrapping up uh, my earlier point, with the Warriors' offense stalling, they managed to pull off this win. And so you ask yourself why, and it's because it's these same offensive struggles we've been talking about with the Raptors that have plagued them throughout the season. I mean, um, there were multiple occasions where it was less than 10 seconds of the clock. And um, I think that's part of the reason why Van Vliet took 10 three-point attempts. A couple of those were just late on the shot clock and he just they just run out of options because uh, the Warriors' defense just stifled the offense. So 
um, just based on this game alone, it was hard to find a possible fix for their problems. It was, uh, it was quite difficult to watch as a Raptors fan. Yeah, we saw similar struggles in the next game, but we're going to delay the discussion of that for our special guest later on. Instead, we're going to move on to the double header against Charlotte, uh, which came up, ended up with two dubs in the end. Very close, both games. Um, two, in fact, very exciting games. But one yeah. thing I want to talk about is the emergence of both of Chris Boucher, who we mentioned at the start. And I don't think we need to discuss too much about him because we mentioned him last episode about his development. But I think these yeah. two games showed he just was going crazy. I mean, in the Portland game, which we'll discuss, he hit five threes. This game, he scored 25 points of 8 of 12 shooting. Again, shot 50% from three. Last night, he delivered. He, got, he, was, the high, he was the highest rebound. You know, he's, um, he's delivering every single game. And it's indicative that the minute share has gone from Aaron Baines playing 20-plus and Len playing 10-plus, and then Boucher maybe filling in at power forward slash garbage mm-hmm. minutes at centre, to now Boucher becoming the main man and playing 30-plus minutes a game at that position. Or sharing that, maybe sharing the four and five role with Stanley Johnson or OG, who we, who we also mentioned. But um, yeah. his development, I mean, he's not just on a hot streak, is he? He's, he's the real deal. Mm. Uh, 100%, 100% agree with that. I mean, <laughs> well, you just mentioned Aaron Baines' minute share. He had four minutes in the last game, eight minutes in the game before. He was the starter. So Coach Nurse pretty much went, he did the. Um, who was the Arsenal player who was subbed on and then subbed off? Was it Abue. Emmanuel Bue? Yeah, Abue. Yeah, <laughs> he did an Abue. You just went, yeah, you're useless. Get off the pitch. Um, well, you know the score? Uh, the, yeah. the, the Raptors were 12-5 down when he went off Baines last night. And I think they turned it around. They won on a 26-10 run or something like that. Like, it yeah, was yeah they started incredibly slowly. Yeah, that's actually right, Kamel. Um, yeah. It's quite interesting as well. Um, maybe you could like discuss uh, what you saw from Stanley Johnson. He did yeah. have um, two really good plays at the end of uh, yesterday's game on the defensive end. But um, also interesting to see Watanabe also get 15 minutes in the um, uh, game prior to the one last night, which was quite nice to see. Yeah, we have repped Watanabe. And to all our listeners, actually, last episode, uh, which we put Watanabe's name in, was actually our most listened episode since 2019. So we, we thank you for all the Utah fans that are coming. Not, not the jazz fans, Utah Watanabe fans that have come <laughs> and are new listeners of this podcast. Because he is balling as well. I mean, again, it's not showing up on the box score. But if we, throw, if we block him in with Johnson and OG, those are three reasonably tall, sturdy, brilliant hustle defenders. And they are mm-hmm. really, whenever they come on, they are delivering. In Saturday's game against Charlotte, and we'll move on to the, the other theme is actually, is uh, putting one of the point guards with the bench, running them with the bench and not letting the bench fend for themselves. We mentioned it last episode. Lowry and bench is a winning formula. Cue Saturday's game, the second quarter. Phenomenal one by Toronto. It was just Lowry. It was Lowry, Boucher, Stanley Johnson, Powell, and Watanabe. And they went on a phenomenal run. They, the, it was some of the best Raptors basketball I've ever seen them play. So fluid because you had that veteran almost directing traffic. Yesterday's game, we saw a similar thing. I think Lowry might have been a bit gassed for yesterday's game. He, didn't, he played a lot of minutes with the starters, but instead it was Van Vliet running with the bench. And similar result, the bench were delivering. That is the formula, the blueprint for Nick Nurse going forward. But sorry, yeah. I digress. Go back to Stanley Johnson. He has turned from one of the... He was ninth pick, I believe, in the 2015 draft. Is that, is that correct? Something like that. No he, idea. He, he was a high first-round pick, Stanley Johnson. Mm. 
and he completely flopped at Detroit. But somehow this front office saw something in him and Nick Nurse and the coaches have turned him into a really serviceable player. Not only that, they, by embracing small ball, they've turned him into one of the league's really best backup big men. <laughs> you don't need Baines and Len anymore. Johnson, Stanley Johnson and Boucher, maybe throw a bit of OG in there. That is the blueprint going forward. Yep, you're going to get owned sometimes because we saw yesterday, well, the last two games, Biombo and Washington had a field day on the rebound. However, you can deal with that because they're very good defenders. They can hold their own in the post. And of course, on the other end, going forward, you know, being able to pop a three um, uh, and basically be an all-round player, be a modern, modern spacing five. That is what we've seen from them. And I'm very, very excited. And um, those two wins were close, but I think they were fully deserved in the end. Yeah, agreed. And I think on that note, we could probably just transition into the Portland game of as well. Of course, of course. Uh, we are going to bring in our special guest to discuss the Portland game. You've heard his voice before several times on the podcast. Um, it's Samuel Jeffries. Samuel, welcome to the podcast. How are you? All the way from Oregon. Thank you, KJ. Made my, my trip here and I'm uh, uh, excited to, to discuss the game with you. Thank you. Recording, of course, 3 a.m. in Oregon right now. So thank you for staying up. This is right after the Portland carried out a pretty expert win over, the, over a struggling Hawks side. But we want to talk about another win over a struggling side earlier in the week. And that is your 112-111 victory over the Raptors. Um, before we discuss Portland in general, tell us what you saw from this win. From a Portland perspective, and interestingly enough, from an opposing fan's perspective, why did the Raptors fall short in this game? I feel like it was a fourth quarter collapse for the Raptors. I think the Blazers outscored them by 11. And it, it was just shot making by the Blazers, by experienced, skillful players like Melo. I think he had 12 points in that fourth quarter, hitting three after three. And then CJ McCollum, obviously. Iceness veins closing out. And that was the difference. You saw CJ McCollum, one point down with 30 seconds on the clock, come up, call an ISO, hit a mid-range and put the Blazers up by one. And then you saw Pascal Siakam on the other end. Call a po- have Robert Covington in the post, try and put the moves on him, miss a shot. And that was the difference. So from your perspective, and we'll bring it back to the last play, the fidget spinner we discussed at the start of the episode. Was that, was that a sensible move from Nick Nurse to put Siakam one-on-one with Covington? Siakam had had success in the post of that game. But... He, he had been successful in the post that game, but you do not want to be relying on a post-up. I think, as Varel may have alluded to earlier in the podcast, you do not want to be relying on a post-up as your final play of the game, unless you've got Shaq or someone like that. Because you saw there was help defense coming over. I think it was Derek Jones Jr. at the end of that game, coming over, putting him off as mm. well, even after he'd beaten Covington with the spin move, made him pump fake. And it's the, the post-up just isn't, as much of an option and as good as a play as an isolation from a guard nowadays in the NBA or even from a wing. And the problem Siakam has closing the game is that he's just not an elite shooter. So you will happily let him shoot a contested mid-range. So that reduces options at the rim as well. Yeah, I mean, it would be better. I mean, as good as CJ and Dame are, they're not necessarily the best defenders. And I guess you'd, you'd probably be scared if someone like Lowry or Van Vliet driving at them with with a few seconds to go. Um, let's move on, however, to Portland in general. Uh, you're not having a bad yeah. season at all. I mean, uh, the eight and five, you're second in your Northwest division, just behind Utah. 
Um, talk us through Portland, who were admittedly hyped this season after some very good off-season pickups. Just talk us through quickly how those uh, off-season pickups have formed. Uh, you've mentioned before CJ has really taken a step up this year. And uh, do you expect your playoff prospects to be non-chokeable this year, as we have not seen from the Trailblazers in previous years? Now, this year, I've been really pleased with how the Blazers have performed record-wise because even though Damian Lillard, he's not had a great start to the season. He's had games where he's shot poorly. Against the Raptors, I think he had 23 points, but he didn't shoot the ball well at all. And even with his slow start to the season, he picked up against the Hawks with, I think, 36 points. We've still managed through a team performance led by CJ and our much-increased depth in the forms of having now Gary Trent Jr. off the bench, Mello mm. off the bench. That's allowed us to not only sustain good form with our starters, but continue, with, continue it with our bench. However, I do think that there needs to be more from our defence because all of our acquisitions this, this off-season were planned around our defence. Derek Jones Jr., elite wing defender. We gave up a couple of first-round picks and Trevor Ariza to get Robert Covington, a great team defender. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's still not quite worked out so far. I think Yusuf Nurkic started the season quite slowly defensively, and now he's got injured, which won't help, because we'll be starting Enes Kanter, who's one of the worst defenders at the centre position I've ever seen. And, and do, we, do we know the latest update on his injury? Uh, it's a fractured wrist, so he'll be out quite a while. I think he's having some more scans on it now. Mm, okay. And it's eight weeks. Eight weeks. Actually, he's out. Yeah, we're actually worse. We've been worse this season defensively. I think we're 29th in defensive rating, and last year we were 28. So I had no idea about that. But I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Samuel, about. So, have you actually, um, when considering their games that they've had, I think they've actually have had quite a tough schedule. Um, uh, they played already. I think they played the well. Looking at their first four games: the Jazz, the Rockets, the Lakers, and the Clippers. Um, they've had a pretty tough schedule, and I'm looking at their next few games. So, really, their next seven games. I think their toughest game is probably going to be against the Rockets um, at the end of is this that month. tough anymore? Oh, I think so. I think with uh, Victor Oladipo and Christian Wood, I, I think that'll be a fairly tough game. Um, but do you think? Uh, Maybe this eight and five record and this um, poor defensive rating, maybe it's been skewed by the difficulty of the schedule. And so, do you think that this team is actually potentially performing better than the record and you know any of their stats show? For sure, I think especially defensively. I, I mm. quoted the stat that we're 29th in defensive rating, but we, we are playing better defense than last year. It's just that we expected a much to be at least a top 15 defense with our acquisitions. But I think as well with the record, yeah. we've had a decent net rating as well, considering we've been going up against these teams. That's kind of matched our record. So it's where we should be against, playing against these teams. So hopefully against weaker opponents now, the Blazers will just make professional wins and get through the stretch. Maybe 6-1, and 5-2 and two should be the aim. Uh, and um, I wanted to ask a question about Nurkic because we saw how different this team looks with him compared to without him last season. So do you think it's going to be as big a loss as last season, um, considering, you know, the roster that they have? Can they, for example, consider, you talk about Derek Jones Jr., who's 
in, in a, when we look at his frame, you can see comparisons with him and the likes of Boucher. So do you think perhaps they could even give him minutes at the centre or which other players? Uh, do they, they don't have Myers Leonard anymore, do they? Do they have no. Zach Collins? Potentially um, they could play those like different players at the centre. What options do the Blazers have? Last night, actually, we saw Derek Jones Jr. getting some minutes at centre um, mm. when the Hawks played a small ball lineup, So he could guard John Collins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Enes Cantor, I think, is, is going to have to step it up, along with Harry Giles leading the bench until Zach Collins comes back. Oh, uh, has he been injured? He's, he's still out with an injury. I think he had okay. uh, surgery on his ankle at the end of December. So we're going to have to hope that Enes Cantor can uh, continue. His, he's been a great rebounder off the bench. Yeah. And we're going to have to hope he plays like he did in that Western Conference final run. Just being solid, being there, filling in and playing his role for the team. But Harry Giles as well, he's something, someone I'm really excited about. In the preseason, he put on, put on a show. He, we saw him driving, going coast to coast, hitting threes, playing like a real modern big man. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to see what he can do off the bench, getting minutes now. Great. Well, uh, thanks for the Portland update, uh, Samuel. I want to ask both of you, though, just focusing on the wider league. I think the elephant in the room, which maybe the listeners are wondering why we haven't discussed yet, is the huge, huge trade that went down, um, which saw Kuroks go to the Rockets. Oh, I mean, that is, that is a game changer. No, I mean, um, I'll read out the full trade. Let, let me find the full trade, but I just want uh, your initial thoughts. Uh, we'll start with Varel. Your initial thoughts in this trade, not only on the makeup of it, but just how it impacts the prospects of, I guess, all four teams, if, if it does. And then we'll go to Samuel. I'll actually, I'll actually cop out here and pass the buck to Ooh. Samuel because I think I could talk about this for like 20 minutes. So I don't want to waffle too much. I'll let Samuel discuss it first. Go for it. I think, first of all, the paces... I thought they'd taken a big W with that trade because all they gave away was an expiring Victor Oladipo who'd stated that he wanted to leave in the off-season and got back Karis LeVert and the second rounder. But Karis LeVert, I think we discovered last night, is actually, they did an MRI and discovered a small mass on his kidney, which is, um, so hopefully he recovers from that and it's nothing Mm. overly dangerous, but he's going to be out indefinitely. That's quite a big loss for the Pacers. I think the Rockets, I was a bit disappointed they didn't get more in the end for Harden because I think that they could have at least taken maybe Dinwiddie as well off of the off of the Nets because Harden's that kind of player. He's still on a two-year deal. I know he wanted out, but he's, he's that good. The Rockets wanted him. The Sixers wanted him. So there was a lot of pressure there for the Nets. They, 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 I think that the Nets finessed. They absolutely finessed the Rockets getting an MVP caliber player for Jarrah Allen, Karis LeVert, Rodney Kurucks, and a few first-round picks. Sorry, first-round picks, let's just discuss. And I said this to you, Samuel, on Thursday. I said they have just recovered from the period, from their last huge trade where they gave up all their picks for, you know, Mm -hmm. the build-up big three. They've got another big three Mm -hmm. now, and they've given all their picks, what, uh, 2022, 24, and 26. I mean, they're not going to recover till 2027 now unless they win this year is, is that sensible but not even unless they win Camille even if they win you know uh two championships um those guys aren't going to be around till 2027 I mean, to be fair, regardless to be fair I'm sure Nets fans would take back-to-back championships for you know sacrifice the next few years 
like the Raptors have done, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm, ju I'm just uh, saying they've just recovered from one and they're going for it again, which is very, uh, it seems reckless almost. Um, I, I really wanted to, I'm about to explode from frustration here. Um, I, <laughs> for me, I said it on the Facebook um, Falling in the Six group. I think this is going to be the next Celtics trade 2.0 from, I don't know when exactly it was, 2010, 2011. Um, this team is not going to win a championship this year. Um, definitely not going to happen. We can discuss, you know, the reasons why uh, behind that. Um, but um, those pick swaps are deadly. Again, the Nets should have learned their lessons from the last trade. If they do end up, say, not winning the championship, because at this point is now win or bust, then this team is likely going, very, very likely going to have to enter the tank. And um, if they're giving up, you know, if they're getting the second or third pick, I think all those pick swaps are unprotected as well. We're going to see that, you know, the stream of third um, overall picks, second overall picks that the Celtics had over the past uh, decade. Um, it could be a massive win-win this trade for both teams. If the Nets, obviously, if they get one or two um, championships, it's a big win-win. But when you mentioned Spencer Dinwiddie there, uh, Samuel, the thing is, he's going to be out for this whole season anyway. So he's also not he's also not a young player. I think he's he's past thirty as well. So how much value does he really have? Maybe two or three years. I think if I was the Nets, I would have actually wanted to give up the likes of Dinwiddie and maybe not give up one of those first round picks because it's hard for me to say that yes, Spencer Dinwiddie's worth a first round pick at, the, at this point because of his injury. We we have no idea how he's going to come back from it. It is an ACL injury. Um, so, you know, it could be a massive win-win, but I think now, potentially now, this is something all three of us could discuss now, is what are the title aspirations for this team? Do you guys now see them as the clear runaway favourites in the East this season? And um, if so, again, do you expect this to continue for the next two, three seasons for, those, for these guys to, you know, be in the running for a championship? I think that they are the clear favourites to win the East. Maybe apart from the, the team they've got to get past, in my opinion, is the Philadelphia 76ers. The, those, those two sides, in my opinion, top, the, the best teams in the East. And for me, they can, they can go punch for punch with, with any team in the West as well. Talk about the Lakers, the Clippers, that, that star power now that the Nets have. I know they, they lost a lot of depth in that trade. They lost a lot of picks, but you've got now... Three, two, two MVP caliber players and one who's an all-star starter quality player when he's on it in Kyrie Irving. Mm -hmm. If yeah. they gel, like we know that they're three-star players, like we know Kevin Durant has done this on the Warriors before going with two other big stars and leading yeah. them to a championship without much depth. If they gel, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a wrap. I mean, they're, we, should, we should just comment that yesterday was the first time that Harden and Durant played together. Harden, Durant dropped 42 points and Harden got 32 mm. points and a triple-double. So I don't think there's any... But I think maybe Kyrie is the wild card here in terms mm. of actual chemistry. But I think there was a yeah. point made on uh, the NBA and TNT. And they said that Durant and Harden obviously provide, you know, the bulk, the size, you know, that they can, they can dominate physically. Kyrie is just mm. going to add a skill element to that. And so combining those two, having that, versatility and flexibility that'll only make you stronger you know and I think there was a lot of 
chat going around initially that, oh, you know, that all three of them are love, love to be the dominant ball handler. But come on, man. we saw Curry and Durant work together, right? I mean, uh, we, we can see these three work together. I'm, I'm terrified of this team. And quite frankly, I'm glad that the Raptors invested and made that trade and won when they did, because I'm not sure that 2019, would ever, 2019 team would have any chance of even getting a game against this net side in a playoff game yeah this is interesting such a, such a strong net side the only problem i would have yeah. is at center they had to play deandre jordan yeah. for yeah. 23 minutes and i believe they had maybe it was a, a perry they played for the remainder so they haven't got too much depth uh, as a big uh, the big man position but you know everywhere else is all right <laughs> um yeah and I, that was the point i was going to mention that i think them losing caris oh, sorry not caris but jarrett allen was a massive loss I would have much preferred them to trade Spencer as opposed to Jarrett Allen. I, seemingly, it wasn't possible. But think about this trade, lads, because this is a, nego- a negotiation must have happened for this trade. So what on earth were the Houston Rockets asking for before this to then for the Nets to barter it down to this point? Because they gave away the whole house, the Nets. They gave away pretty much everything they could apart from Spencer Dinwiddie. So was the negotiation like this? Oh, yeah, we also want Spencer. And they went, okay, oh, we don't really want to give up Spencer. We'll need him for next year's title. And then that's the compromise they came to. Like, they gave away absolutely everything, which I can't, I genuinely cannot believe because Harden was a player who's clearly disgruntled and dissatisfied, who's broken the league protocol, who's overweight. He, he just looked like, you know, he wasn't going to make any sort of effort on the Rockets. And the Rockets absolutely needed to trade him. And I can't imagine there were many other offers for Harden that were anywhere near this ballpark. I know the um, 76ers um, at one point were linked to him. Um, I think the Bucks as well before Drew Holiday. But um, for me, you have to look at this trade in the context of like um, Harden's situation in Houston, but also what other teams are willing to offer. And so that's why I think they grossly overpaid for him. I you could also look at it the other way and say, look, the Rockets knew that the Nets were, were all in on this trade, that they absolutely wanted it to happen. But in, again, in my opinion, I think the Nets were more than capable of winning the East without this trade anyway. And talking about team composition, I do think it actually is a massive problem because Harden and Durant, I think they're a perfect combination almost because they both can... Um, well, actually, this is one of Harden's weaknesses is that he can't really operate off-ball They're very well. He's very lazy off the ball, but um, you could look at it like this. Now that Kyrie's there as well, Harden can actually play that defense that we've seen him play in the playoffs, that he can actually move a little bit more off the ball rather than just putting hands on knees and standing in the corner, which he did with the Ross a lot of times last season. But yeah, my overall thinking is they didn't need to give up this much, the Nets. And I also think the composition of this team is strange. Karis Levert was an excellent defender. I'm not even sure I would have Kyrie over Karis for this team because Karis could also score the ball and he was a much, much better defender than Kyrie, which you might need in those clutch situations. And you've got the clutch gene or the clutch factor in Durant and you've got it in Harden. So is Kyrie going to have the ball in the closing situations. I don't think so. So I do have a problem with this team's composition. It is just full of talent. But the other thing maybe we could also consider is here is what do you guys think about their mentality? You know, people have talked about these guys as all, you know, being drama queens and whatever. 
do you think that's going to be an issue for this team or do you think purely due to the fact that you know they're good friends or they're there because they are so talented that they are they will inevitably just mesh well together I think they're all players who want to win they're all they're all super competitive superstars and that drive to win will overpower any personality chinks that they have uh, with each other any issues that they overcome so that's in my opinion that's that, that, that's what can happen I think they're so competitive that even Harden and Durant, for example, if Kyrie's having a good night, I think they'll let him take the last shot. I think that's that's yeah. just the the way they're built. They're they're winners, these guys, especially Durant. Could we say this about Harden? Isn't he I the think, most? I'd say he's the most renowned star at the moment. That who's um you know who's really disappeared in those big moments. I think he's he's that that one season where he had Chris Paul on the Rockets. And they took the Warriors to seven. That was their chance to win a title, to get to the finals. And I think you you can't fully put the blame on him. He did. He was part of that stretch where they missed twenty seven straight threes. But with Chris Paul out, it's I think when he has another kind of leader with him, when he has another winner with him, a guy who's been around the block as well, mm. a second almost option on the ball to to lead the offense when things aren't working for him. Then I think it's it's it'll be hard to stop. Yeah, no, uh, he had. I mean, he couldn't do it with Westbrook. He couldn't do it with Chris Paul. Admittedly, he was out. He didn't want to play with John Wall. Uh, now this is Harden. This is James. This is your last chance to really show that you're not a joker and that you can do it in the clutch and in the playoffs. Uh, just to keep it brief. Um, and but I think in terms of meshing. You got to remember that uh, this Nets team has almost been built some somewhat by its players. I mean, the, these guys like Durant and Kyrie, I believe, demanded that DeAndre was on the team, and I bet they're really happy that he's starting right now. So, uh, I, d- I think they would have had some say in hard in the Harden trade as well in bringing him in. Yeah, um, maybe just as the last thing discussing this, Karis Levert and Oladipo trade. Uh, that was another thing I actually. Kind of disagreed with Sammy about uh, Samuel about there because um, you said it was a great trade for the Pacers. I think the exact opposite. I think it's it could be the worst trade this offseason, and it completely depends on um, how Oladipo turns out. Because I've talked about this with Kamel earlier. When I saw him against the Cavaliers again, bear in mind this was two or three years ago in the playoffs. Oladipo in that series against LeBron, it was Oladipo versus LeBron, and he took him to Game Seven. And watching. Oladipo throughout that series, I thought this guy easily has the potential to be a top 10 player in the league. He looked incredible um, outside, inside, the way he was uh, leading the team. He, he's making all the right plays, basically. Um, he was also very good on defense. So I think he had phenomenal potential. If this big if the injury had happened, I think it was almost a certainty that he would develop into that player. That's how high on him as a player I was. When we actually look at him this season, I think he's started to look like himself a little bit. And in my opinion, even if he gets back to like, you know, 75, 80% of the player he was three years ago, say the Pacers absolutely have to keep him. This guy is, he has the potential to be the one option of a title contending team. And so, why I think the Pacers had to keep him is what does Karis Levert do for you? This guy isn't 
going to put you in that sort of contention. Maybe as the Pacers, you're looking at, you know, acquiring another star alongside Sabonis and alongside Levert to then make a big three. But that's not a certainty. And this Indiana market is a, it's a smaller market. It's harder to attract those big names. So I think they almost have to go all in on Oladipo and hope that they did well enough this season to convince him to stay. And so I think it could end up being a terrible trade for them. But um, yeah, I'd like to hear both of your opinions on that. Well, I think we can uh, very briefly go. I mean, I, I think it was, I agree with you. I think it was a bad trade for the Pacers. I think Oladipo should have been their franchise player. And that's where I'll leave it the, at that. The problem with Oladipo is they'd stated publicly he uh, wanted to leave uh, at the end of last season. He was telling other teams like the Knicks that, oh, um, I'm going to be leaving. I'll join you guys next season after he played. Anyway, I think we'll... Uh... Yeah, I think we're going to cut. Raptors end the, season, end the week with a 4-8 and eight record. Just one game behind the playoff seed and only 4.5 games behind the top seed Celtics. Samuel Varel, thanks once again for appearing on the podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Catch you all next week.